show is here. Yo, our mission is clear. It's time to change healthcare. Have no fear. Today is the day. This is the hour. Together, you know we've got the power. Drop the silos. We're all the same team. Experience, business, tech, and marketing. How can anyone be satisfied with the way things have always been? Yeah, we tried. So join us now. Join the revolution. Consumer first health is the evolution. Status quo, more like status. No. Yeah, this is the healthcare rap. Y'all, come on, let's go. New choices, new platforms, new care models. In the healthcare of tomorrow, consumers win. But who will design it? What will it look like? And how long will it take? We're here to answer those questions with some provocative thinking about how to create the healthcare that people actually want. Ready to roll up your sleeves, look at the world a little differently, and explore the frontiers of consumer health together? Join us. This is the Healthcare Wrap. Hey, it's Jared Johnson from Shift Forward Health, and here's what's going to go down today. We have the flavor of the week about Village MD's part in helping reduce the cost of care through direct contracting. How did ACO Reach reduce costs by over $800 million last year? And how can we better understand the financial models that provide opportunities to be consumer-centered? I'll talk about that. Then Christopher Habig joins us to discuss why direct primary care is growing. As co-founder and CEO of Freedom HealthWorks, Chris helps launch DPC practices across the nation. So today he shares with us the value propositions for how clinicians, consumers, and yes, even startups and entrepreneurs are benefiting from this care model. It's time to dive right in. Are you ready? Let's go. Flavor of the week. Village MD is calling attention to the cost savings that can come from direct contracting, and it's worth including in our discussion of how to build up consumer muscles within our organizations. Because we all know that until the balance sheet makes sense, innovations rarely see the light of day. But let's take a look at what they said regarding direct contracting's role in moving from healthcare to health. Providing healthcare over sick care is better for patients and reduced costs in our healthcare system. Village MD and participants in Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services' direct contracting model saved our healthcare system $870 million in gross savings in 2022. The Village MD practices that participated in the CMMI ACO model generated over $60 million in gross savings across nearly 77,000 patient lives. They did this by focusing on helping patients get ahead of disease and illness, limiting the progression of conditions to keep patients out of costly and stressful emergency care settings. The direct contracting model now known as ACO Reach supports healthcare organizations in providing value-based care. It's an innovative model for transitioning away from fee-for-service care towards a patient-centered approach. Keeping people healthy longer can be a source of immense savings for the healthcare system. The U.S. spends $4.1 trillion in annual healthcare expenditures, as many of you know, and more than 90% of those costs are on patients with chronic and mental health conditions. VillageMD and many others are bringing down those costs while promoting prevention, wellness, and the early diagnosis and consistent management of chronic conditions. I wanted to highlight these numbers because it can be hard sometimes to see the value of direct contracting when we look through a fee-for-service lens. And the same goes for a lot of consumer-centered services and experiences. We tend to agree that consumer transformation is important. And don't get me wrong, that's a lot of progress compared to a couple of years ago. But then we don't know what to do about it. We don't let the sparks of innovation spread. We slowly suffocate those flames within our organizations and tell innovators to quit causing a ruckus and get back to the assembly line of our 200-year-old business model. I believe direct contracting could play a bigger part in discussions about making healthcare easier for everyday people. Consumer-first health won't always align with the financial expectations of yesterday's business models, so provider organizations have to change the way that they see the financial 
financial value of focusing on consumers' needs. And when that happens, those sparks of innovation are a lot more likely to grow into flames that can't be ignored. Let's take the time to better understand the financial models that provide opportunities to be more consumer-centered. That's another way that we'll build the healthcare of tomorrow. And that's the flavor of the Week. All right, everyone, let's get into the flow. Please give it up for Christopher Habig. Christopher is the co-founder and CEO of Freedom HealthWorks. They help DPC practices launch. Christopher, welcome to the Healthcare App. Thank you, Jared. Pleasure to be here. I love starting off with, if you're at a cocktail party, how do you explain what you do for a living and kind of what you're all about? What, what does that conversation look like for you? There's a couple of different answers to that, depending on who is attending the cocktail party. If it's just a general networking, then... What I really like to do is get my hook in there. And so they say, hey, Chris, what do you do for a living? And well, most people say, hey, Chris, what do you do? And I say, for fun or for, you know, to pay the bills? And that, you know, usually a chuckle and kind of some weird glances there. But I say uh, to pay the bills, I give people an option when it comes to their health care. And that usually elicits a second question, like, well, what do you mean? I go, well, we help fight the status quo for doctors, patients, and employers. And so I try to leave that in there. If they have no idea what direct primary care or even concierge medicine is, if it's a room full of doctors, I basically say, I run a concierge physician network. If I'm at a conference where people understand what direct primary care is, I go that route because that's really what we are is a community of independent physicians that are really looking, trying to get, trying to provide the best care possible for patients in all of our communities. Part of these innovations, these different types of care models is getting the word out and helping people understand. And I'm learning still the benefit of storytelling as part of that. I mean, it's important that that we are able to explain different parts of the story, it feels like, as, as you go, depending on who you're speaking to. It sounds like that's something you've done before. I, that was a le- lesson hard learned early on when I said, yeah, we we are a direct primary care enablement company and people kind of look at you funny like, I don't know what any of those words mean. And so then with modern day public and, and what they see in the headlines, most people understand what a concierge physician does. They understand that, well, this is somebody who I can pay and get a higher level of service, higher level of access. They still don't understand how the dollars and cents flow in that regard. So even if zooming out a little bit more, I say, look, we provide options for people who are fed up with the status quo in healthcare. And that usually rings a bell with somebody because as Americans, we are by default, we expect the worst possible experience whenever we need to engage the healthcare sector. And that's really where we've made a lot of good growth, a lot of penetration with our business and our model being able to take advantage of that. Part of the storytelling you do, I want to mention your podcast before we get too much into things. Uh, it's Healthcare Americana. Tell us about the show. That started uh, a few years ago just as a way to tell DPC physician stories. There's so much just going under the radar and there was just so much noise in healthcare headlines that the really good stories about a physician going into an ER and pulling a patient out and saying, you don't need to be here. Let's go back to my office so I can treat your sprained ankle or do something like that. I mean, there's massive cost savings into having the access and having the ability to actually talk and interact with your doctor. None of that's going to be in headlines because it's really hard to measure how much money we just saved the taxpayers of the U.S. by treating somebody at the primary care level 
and not sending them to the ER or to specialties or to surgeries. And so we just started telling stories and, and what people saw on the ground and it grew from there. And so we talked to people on the international healthcare scene. We talked to people in, in government and policy, and I know you do too. And, you know, the more people we have telling those stories, the better off we are, because I guarantee you somebody's going to relate to it, whether that's a mental health subject and how primary care can really help alleviate the bottlenecks of mental health professionals versus here's this cutting edge cancer drug that nobody else would ever know about. So there's so much hope happening, Jared, I think is my point. There's so much good things and optimism and hope for what we're doing in the American healthcare world that you pick up a paper and it's all doom and gloom. And that's what we wanted to change. I don't know if there are any episodes that stick out. The ones that really stick out are the ones that are physicians. And I love asking them, when's your light bulb moment? When was this moment where you just realized, I cannot continue to go working in a hospital and trying to treat my patients. Because most of the time, the, the physicians that have switched into DPC or left employed medicine are people, are doc doctors who have been patients themselves. And when that light bulb moment hit them, they realized, holy crap, I have been sending patients into this system my entire career and never even knew the harm I was doing to them from a mental standpoint, from a financial standpoint, I thought I was just doing a good job in taking care of them. Then I got sick myself and realized that I myself as a physician had trouble navigating and understand what was going on. My patient didn't have a chance. And that's why I decided to make a change and practice medicine in a, in a far better more um, uh, a patient-centered way. So I know it's kind of a, kind of a, not a direct answer there, Jared, but you know, the episodes where I get to interview doctors and ask them where their light bulb moment was and they talk about their own health and their own past health experiences. I mean, I started finding that most of my guests got into changing healthcare because they themselves got sick or they had a loved one that got sick and they were the caretaker and they realized just how big a mess it really was. Now, I'm always quick to correct people when they say U.S. healthcare is broken. It's not broken. It's a fifth of our economy. There are a lot of people making money. It's just not the people that we like to see winning. We like to see doctors and nurses and patients winning rather than big nameless organizations and murky third parties and all this kind of stuff who are taking their slice of pie while cutting everybody else out. So that's why we're telling all these stories and, and that's what we're doing, what we're doing to make sure that, hey, people understand what's going on we can shine a light really into the darkness and we got to see all the cockroaches go scattering. Very nice, very nice. Well, perfect way to transition into DPC itself. Can you give us a layperson's explanation of direct primary care and how is it different than traditional care delivery? I wish I could go back in time and wherever the term direct primary care started, I wish I could go back and change that. And because it asks more, it really asks more questions than it answers when you describe something like that. All this is, is really how healthcare worked back in the 50s and 60s, even before that. These are community physicians that people are able to go to, they're able to see, they're able to talk to every single day. You can pay the physician with chickens or eggs or steaks or beers or whatever it is. It's kind of this classic care model that we're going back to with a modern twist of a subscription, a membership. And what that does is allow unfettered access to your trusted medical profession. So a little longer of an explanation, but you know, some people call it 
confuse it with concierge medicine. Some people call it membership medicine. All it is is strengthening the doctor-patient relationship and cutting out everybody else. And unfortunately, most of the American public doesn't understand that that is the main issue affecting us as patients, as healthcare consumers, is that there's so many layers in between a patient and their doctor where it is absolutely handcuffing their doctor, whether it is handcuffing the doctor's expertise, their decision-making ability, the options of treatment, or just the time spent with the patient. Those are massive things. You know, I think I think I heard this at a conference that 80 to 85% of a diagnosis is built on your patient history. Now you couple that with the fact that most physicians who participate in an insurance billing model have maybe seven to 10 minutes with you to ask all these questions, get your history. It's impossible to do. And so you start to see the edges just kind of fall away and fray here because the incentive structure is screwed up. The way we pay for it is so screwed up. And so when we talk about DPC, we understand that a one-size-fits-all does not appeal to everybody. There is no one-size-fits-all solution to anything. When my team talks to patients about this, we know that a 20-year-old wants ease of access because they're probably navigating health needs for the first time ever. They might be booking a doctor's appointment by themselves for the first time in their life. They want it to be as easy as possible. They're very tech savvy. They're aware of their mental health standing. You talk to somebody who's over 60, they might think mental health is this thing that uh, the younger generation is completely invented and we all just need to suck it up and, you know, march, march, tie our boots up and march out to work. But they join for different reasons. They want the access. They want the budgetable expenses, understanding that their doctor is going to do their best to keep them out of the specialist office, out of the ER. So there's all kinds of things that appeal and I think that's one of the problems that a lot of DPC practices run into is that they try to try to put this one-size-fits-all sales approach into everybody that walks in their door. Under, they miss the fact that me as a patient, my story is unique, and I'm talking to you for reasons that might not apply to the next person who walks in. So I know I, I drift a little bit on your question there, but that's what we see when people explain really what direct primary care is. It's not just something for the rich people out there. It's far from it. We see that the lower income, lower socioeconomic statuses are actually benefiting from this because if you're on Medicaid plans, you are so limited on your options of health care that you are just begging for somebody who is able to answer your questions. And so we see that lower income families actually prioritize this type of membership far more than the wealthier do. So that's always a fun point to push back against uh, when somebody asks, you know, the challenges of DPC or, hey, is this just for the elites and just for the rich? But yeah, I guess, you know, Jared, just answering your question directly, this is the quintessential doctor-patient relationship where trust is built and trust is really ingrained in a medical environment. I love that. And we will talk about how some of the different parties involved benefit and value DPC itself. I'd love to hear, even before we get into that, about just how, how it's grown over the last few years and, and why you think so many clinicians are moving in this direction. I guess it does speak to the nature of what that value proposition is to the provider themselves. You mentioned some who have kind of left you know, the structured, traditional types of care, maybe the only you know, an employed, you know, hospital employed provider, for instance, how has it been growing and how are clinicians seeing the benefit of it so that they're starting to go in this direction more? It's a fiercely independent industry. And so it's been really hard to say, oh, there are 3,642 practices out there. So our best estimates are anywhere from about 2,500 on up to about 6,000 direct care, direct primary care practices. That number increases when we talk about employer clinics, nearsight clinics, 
things that are kind of quasi-direct care, but not really the independent physician-centered direct primary care. But starting at zero, we can have massive growth rates, and we're still very low on a raw number figure. So I think that's what my biggest point is. I want people to understand. We need more physicians. We need more physicians who are so fed up with the way that they're treated in their hospitals, and that's not hard to find. There's, you know, 80%, I think, is last time I saw a physician's experience, burnout, moral injury, whatever you really want to call it. One in four doctors are thinking about leaving medicine in the next in the next five years. Why aren't those physicians doing something about it and choosing to practice a different model of medicine where their expertise is valued and they can actually take better care of patients? So there's an education hurdle to get over, Jared. And, and that is what the biggest thing holding this this industry back is that we're very much on the supply side. These services are in demand. We just need more physicians getting out there and saying, this is why I'm doing this to take better care of your patients. And this is what's going to happen. And then away we go. So there's some different things we can do to address that. But I mean, we're double digit growth all the way across the board as an industry, as my company, like we're in triple digit growth because we're tapping into a pain point. Doctors are fed up. And if we don't help the doctors out there, we're not going to have any more doctors in the next five to 10 years. It's it's really scary kind of cataclysmic type scenarios when we drive our best and brightest and most empathetic people in our communities out of the, not even a career, but the calling that that they've dedicated themselves to. If we're doing that to them as a society and as employers, I mean, it's beyond time to look in the mirror and saying, what are we doing? There's got to be a different way to do this. And that's really where our motivation was, is that we got to do everything we can to support physicians and really support all medical practitioners, keep them in practice, but not chain them to the desk and force them to see as many people as possible. We got to give them the lifestyle balance that everybody craves and the ability to take the best possible care of their patients. So maybe you can help my broaden my view here. So the, the DPC providers who I know personally and my family sees tend to be, I'm trying to think of, you know, is there a type of primary care provider who's more likely to understand the benefit here and kind of make this leap? The ones I know personally, for instance, yeah, they're in their you know, probably late 30s to mid to late 40s, for instance. DPC, at least as a model, was was around somewhat during maybe the latter part of their training. They were at least aware of it. They were like, yeah, of course, like this, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, a little earlier in their own journey as they're setting up, yeah, they're all those solo practices you're talking about, those independent practices. So are there some providers who it speaks to more than others? Those who still have energy, the ones that just does not work for are the ones who say, hey, Chris, this sounds great. I love what you guys are doing. I got maybe three or four years. I'm trying to get up to a number and then I'm done. There, We've had some very heart-wrenching stories out there, but we see residents... Well, let me start at the beginning. We see medical students who tell me, I am interested in going into primary care because of the DPC world, because of this membership model. And I ask them, would you go into primary care otherwise? And they go, no. We have medical schools who say, I'm going to pick on one down in, down in Nashville, but I've heard of this verbatim and I don't think she'll mind me saying, sharing this, but you know, we've heard quotes that Vanderbilt University School of Medicine does not produce primary care doctors. That's beneath us. You go to Vanderbilt, you're better than primary care. And so they fight this stigma early on in their training. It's friggin' tragic. It really, really is. But then as the residencies get a taste of it, they say, wow, this is, this is really where I want to go. So 
you know, there's a couple of things, a couple of problems I just touched upon is this notion in America that well, you got to be a specialist. If you're going to be a doctor, you got to be a specialist or a surgeon, leave primary care, leave that to the dogs, right? We don't want to go do that. And so I think the people who are really early career get exposed to it like it. They like the freedom. They like the control of it. They like the ability to practice medicine on their terms. Now they go out, they research how to sell it, how to talk to people. What are they going to do about it, right? How are you going to grow a practice? It's really the return of the independent physician practice that we really saw back in you know, 30, 40 years ago, like I mentioned earlier. We work with mid-career physicians, like you mentioned, that you know, they worked in the hospital setting and they're like, this sucks. <laughs> they're just, they're flat. This, this is not what I want to do. You know, I don't have any control over my patients. The hospital owns the patients and they remind me of that. I get in trouble if I try to refer my patients to any place outside of this hospital. They send nasty letters that why are you referring to somebody else? You know, you got to keep that referral dollar in this hospital system, which is where hospitals make all their money anyways. And then we see it as, as later career physicians as a way to extend their career. And that's a lot of fun because they want to bring on kind of apprenticeship programs and teach younger doctors everything they've learned in their 30 to 40 years of experience. And so, you know, those people are really fun to work with because the term practice of medicine, it just means that you're always constantly getting better, always learning throughout the career. And for them to be able to pass that on to the next round of physicians as they start their career is insanely valuable to really to patients and everybody across the board. So I point is there's an appeal from the really young doctors and people who aren't even doctors yet who are thinking about it to early career, to mid-career, all the way to late career. But again, like I mentioned earlier, there's no one-size-fits-all benefit. Everybody's doing this for their own motivations and their own reasons, but it's just fun to see all that coalesce behind one type of a model and one type of way to really enhance patient care. I've always thought since the very first time I learned what direct primary care is, I'm just like, this is a no-brainer. For everyone involved, it is a no-brainer. The value there for the clinician is is so clear once people understand and and are familiar with the model here. Let's talk about that consumer side, though. So how do consumers respond here? I know there's some probably some pretty clear-cut ways that that they benefit from this model, but you know, has that changed? Are there things you're seeing that you know, at the bottom line, this is an attempt to put their needs at the forefront, spending more time in a visit, having more patient history. Tell us about this. Let's dive into this. Like, how does the consumer, the patient benefit? To most people, we hear the term, we hear the phrase, well, this sounds too good to be true. What's the catch? And there is no catch. There really isn't. And, you know, kind of taking a previous question that you asked me about who is this perfect for? You know, I would say if you're still paying for like a land uh, landline phone number or you're paying for a cable package that you don't use, that's kind of your health insurance right now. If you're somebody who is purchasing Netflix and Apple TV and Hulu and Disney so that you can access your entertainment on your own terms, those are our people. Those are people who understand the opportunity cost of waiting three weeks to go see a primary care doctor after you're already sick. That shouldn't be how people experience healthcare at all. A lot of the times we get people who say, well, I already have insurance. Why do I need to do this? And depending how snarky I feel at that point in time, Jared, I'll say, well, when you're sick, are you going to call up United Healthcare? Are you going to call up Anthem? Are you going to call up your insurance company? <laughs> well, no. Do you have a doctor? Well, no. What are you going to do with your insurance? Do you even understand what that does for you? Well, yeah, it just means that if I'm sick, I can go walk in anywhere. And I'm thinking, does it? 
Does is that what that means? And so there's this fallacy on health insurance and what that actually is. Right now, as Americans, we treat health insurance as a prepaid health plan. That's not the way to do it. No other insurance product functions that way. Why are we able to go afford, you know, nice houses, which are probably the most we're ever going to spend on anything in our life, barring the worst case scenario, the worst day of our lives if something health happens? Yet our insurance premiums are a fraction of the total value of the home. It's because we don't fix leaky toilets with our homeowner's insurance. We put a hole in the wall. Guess what? We call a handyman or we go patch it ourselves. That's maintenance. That's how healthcare should be working. If I get in a car wreck and I got to go to the ER and I'm unconscious and I got a bunch of surgeries, yes, thank God I have insurance because it needs to function as a risk-adjusted financial tool. But most people just don't understand that. They think that I got to have an insurance card in order to go see a doctor. And so you kind of have to fight through this barrier that I'm not just selling you snake oil here. You can actually go see a doctor, pay with US dollars and cents, which is crazy to think about. And you can get immediate service from somebody that you know and can talk to and follow up. So, you know, nationally, most of our most of our practices are like $150 a month or less. We understand that we need to price local and we do that. In rural areas, it's less. In urban areas and suburban areas, it's a higher cost. Just just as supply and demand functions, so can medical services. So we know that the young people, the young patients, they want convenience and affordability, and that's what they get. They want ease of access. They want to be able to get questions answered and not have to Google it or go to WebMD when the, everything is, you know, the computer is going to tell you that, oh, you have cancer, you know, for everything that you t- possibly type in there. That's where the peace of mind really comes in. For people starting their families, you know, you want something that is budgetable. You want something that is simple in its delivery of care. If one kid is sick, you don't want to have to haul the whole family in there or blow an afternoon in a doctor's office just to get a prescription. It isn't necessary underneath this model. You know, you go all the way to empty nesters who are looking out for retirement. They want to be able to text or call their doctor while they travel. They want to be able to have a little bit more of a personable service, and that's what they get. And then you go into older older folks and, you know, the elderly, and I, this might sound a little crass, but... They want a doctor that they can spend time with. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they don't have a lot of people to talk to. Or maybe they look at this doctor as this doctor's expert advice is the only thing keeping me alive right now. I'm going to protect that as much as I can. And they're going to be the higher users of it. And that is perfectly okay. I get this question a lot from doctors that say, hey, how do I prevent somebody from calling me up or sending me a text every single day? And I say, you don't. Because those are the people that have been so hurt by the previous, by the other system out there that they're going to go tell everybody and that is going to be your number one fan and you're going to get probably 50 to 100 patients from that person if you maintain that relationship and they they all kind of smile and laugh like, wow, I didn't even think about that before. But I hope that highlights just how broken most patients are when it comes to what they expect from our healthcare system and this completely turns it on their head. But we got to pop through that veil of, hey, this isn't too good to be true. This is us actually following through on our promises. When you talk about startups, entrepreneurs, business owners, how do they address their healthcare needs? The going thought would be, wow, it's a small company or I'm a solopreneur or whatnot. I'm going to have to pay through the nose for, for my insurance no matter what. There's no option for me besides a high deductible health plan. Uh, talk me through how this benefits an entrepreneur. A couple of different topics there that they're just red meat for things I love to rail against. You know, I think this whole high deductible health plan fad, I guess, 
is one of the most crippling things that has ever happened to the American citizen. Most Americans have, depending on what you what study you look at, anywhere from four hundred to two thousand dollars in emergency funds that are available within a twenty four to forty eight hour notice. Okay, so if your life savings, like your liquid, is four hundred to two thousand dollars, and you have a six thousand dollar deductible health insurance plan, what are you doing? What good is it for you to be paying? tens of thousands of dollars every single year for the privilege to pay more to meet a deductible and an out-of-pocket max that you can't afford anyways. I tell people that all the time. I go, the worst thing ever to happen in healthcare was this high deductible health plan. The whole notion of, hey, there's skin in the game from it from a patient standpoint is complete BS. I mean, that has done more to bankrupt Americans than anything else. And the number one driver of bankruptcy in America is medical debt. And the number one demographic of that is insured Americans. That's just a fact. Nobody has to talk about that. And then, you know, you couple that with nonprofit hospitals are the number one reason why Americans get into medical debt. So that's a whole thing. But when you talk about barriers, right, is kind of where I, I approach this. Barriers to care, barriers to good experience, barriers to innovation. This is very real. Most people who want to go out and start a new business will do it on a part-time basis, right? They'll start out on part-time because they have to have a foot in the other side, either for financial, but most people starting a new business understand the financial risks and have taken plans and are able to accord that. But they stay in the previous job because of the health plan. That's just flat it. I need this health coverage. I need, I need, I need. And there's a lot of fallacies behind this just from this vaunted insurance label. And so that is number one barrier to any type of a startup or entrepreneurial innovation in our country. And so when we talk to small businesses and startups and like you mentioned, the solopreneurs, I'm saying, you know what? What really is a healthcare benefit? And by default answer, people say, well, I I need to have an insurance plan in case something really, really bad happens. I go, okay, that is a good idea. But what if you started looking at insurance plans that function like insurance, but we don't call them insurance plans? What if we just say health plan or health benefit? And now we start legging into the fact that a membership to one of our practices will provide anywhere from three quarters to like five, six, you know, anywhere from like 70 to 90% of your care in any given American's year. That's massive. That's a huge cost savings because now we're talking about anywhere from 800 to 1500 bucks a year to actually access and see a physician, not just throwing it away on an insurance premium. So when people start to start businesses and want to go out on their own entrepreneurial journey, there's things that exist like health shares, there's nonprofit, for-profit, cost-sharing, crowdfunding vehicles out there that can help pay down medical bills. And these companies and these plans are widely successful. They're incredibly popular with their members and they're paying all their bills. And they function as an insurance alternative that is actually affordable. So I'll give you a story of, of what I really mean by this. And hopefully this resonates with, with you and your listeners. But I'm a lucky father of two wonderful kids. My firstborn was my daughter. And um, when she was born in July of 2020 during covid And so she had a COVID baby. My wife had lost her job at a school because schools had shut down, nothing for her to do. And so she lost her job, lost her benefits package. And um, we're like, wow, I couldn't get her on my company plan because we were really close to delivery date. They wouldn't, they wouldn't accept her or else, you know, the entire plan blows up. 
So went out, got an ACA plan, high deductible plan. We had an HSA. We thought, hey, we're, just, we're, we're doing the right thing here. We have a have our daughter, perfect little baby girl, no complications other than the anesthesiologist uh, gave my wife a, a spinal headache, but hey, water under the bridge at this point in time, but no medical complications, anything like that. And so we bring, we bring my daughter home. The bills start arriving, right? I start keeping track of these things because I know some of it, and we never really stepped out in the insurance and benefits world. It's kind of why I got myself into this mess in the first place. And so after totaling all the bills, the total came out to about $42,000 that the hospital billed to our insurance plan for a completely normal vaginal birth, no problems, nothing. I'm like, this is nuts. This is absolutely insane. Insurance company comes in and says, hey, this is great. We're, we're such you know, great friends of you. Like, We're doing an amazing job. We got your bill lowered down to 16. We're going to cover six of that or like five of it. You guys are on the hook for the rest of it. Have a great day. This is, you know, yay us. And it really pissed me off. And I'm like, this is, this is insane. And really what, what really got me is they'd applied the deductible to my daughter, my newborn daughter. I was like, show me where her signature was on this one, right? And they say, well, she was just covered underneath the plan. I say, well, this is crap. So we decided, that, hey, we want to have a second one. I fire the insurance company. We go on to a health share. We lower our premium by half that we're all paying now as a family. And our responsibility, kind of our out-of-pocket max, goes from $10,000 down to one. And so we have a little baby boy. Everything's fine. We have an amazing experience with the hospital and the care staff. But when I go in there for our first appointment, I had to physically pull out my checkbook and say, how much do I write on this if I'm a self-paying cash pay patient because I am uninsured? They asked me to go to Medicaid desk four different times and I didn't want to be a burden to the taxpayers. So I said, no, 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 give me a number. I'm going to write the name of the hospital on this. Give me a number and away we go. And so it took about 20 minutes for them to find the number. And um, they did. And then they all laughed when I said, the number you just gave me for a cash price for all services included is cheaper than what I paid having insurance. And they go, well, yeah, healthcare is cheaper if you don't use insurance. So I use that story, Jared, just to say, oh, and, and the, uh, the takeaway there is that we saved over $10,000 by not being insured and having a health share with a, a patient responsibility that actually makes sense for us. So bottom line is like insurance is, again, this, this fallacy that it goes out and covers everything. And so people are fearful of losing insurance. And so they don't want to go start new businesses. They're terrified to hire people because what that'll do for a health insurance plan. As workers and Americans, we are conditioned to say, hey, I love this new job. I love what you're doing. The salary is great. The bonuses are great. I could be really excited about here. But do you have benefits? And for some reason, we are just fearful as employers to say, like, oh my God, we got to say yes. We have to answer yes. And there has to be insurance. And it is just so many confusing things about how we function as a society when it comes to healthcare and not looking at options. You know, it's like we're just a bunch of ostriches and we bury our head in the sand and we don't even pick our head up long enough to answer, you know, to ask why? Why are we doing this? Why do we have this need to feel like I have to have insurance? Or why do I have this need not to go to the office, doctor's office, and, and why don't I ask the question, how much is this going to cost, doctor? That is so bizarre to me because patients will not ask how much a medical service costs and all we do is complain about it or we don't go seek care. So I know I got a little off topic there, Jared, but you know you got me fired up and said, there's so many barriers out there in people's minds that flat out are not real. 
and we're swinging at straw men here. And it just, I got fed up with it one day and I'm like, this is nuts. I got to go out and tell the stories and do what I can to remove all the smoke and mirrors and kind of the Wizard of Oz and expose them and say, this is not the way to access medical care. This is, there are better ways out there. Yeah, I would say that's directly on the topic <laughs> here, right? Because you're talking about the need to become trusted entities, to help people navigate their options. We've been at this point for a long time now here in, in this country where the majority of Americans need help navigating their journey. They don't know who to speak with. Everyone I know, themselves or a loved one or a very close friend or relative, has that same story of this is what I had to do to get down to a reasonable either price to pay or a reasonable level of service that I actually needed in my care instead of something that wasn't needed. We all have those stories. We're getting right to the heart of, of why this matters. And that is there are ways to provide care that do take into account consumers' needs and expectations. And I feel like the more people we get to that point to recognize those things, the better off we're going to be as a country. So that's the story we're here to share today. And it's been great to share that with you. How do people stay connected with you and what you're doing? Easiest way, freedomhealthworks.com, again, is very physician-centered about what we're able to provide for the doctors on the startup and on the practice management side. Podcast is called Healthcare Americana. Of course, that has its own website, and, and we want to make sure that our audiences are able to go and get the, the relevant information that they need. So yeah, I appreciate you giving our podcast a plug. Yours is fantastic. So thank you for being a voice out there that really illuminates the path ahead and, and helps show people that there are options. And I think that's the bottom line to, to all of this. Well, thanks so much for giving us so much to think about today. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode. I've had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Christopher Habig from Freedom Health Works. Thanks so much for joining us today. Jared, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. 